these stories are so, so good. And uh, we praise God for the people he's brought us and the work that he's doing in their lives. Hey, if you have a Bible, why don't you turn it to John chapter 6. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you'd like one. Our ushers are here and uh, would be happy to put one in your hands. If you don't own a Bible, you can take it home with you. We'd love to uh, um, get that to you. And uh, but you can turn it to John chapter 6. What we're going to see in this text is a, is a people enamored with Jesus. We're going to pe- see a people hanging out, um, drawn to Jesus. Yes, absolutely. But what we're going to discover is that their expectations of Jesus were far too low. They thought he was great, but they just didn't realize how great. So uh, let's take a look at the first 15 verses in what is the longest chapter in the New Testament, John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, The Sea of Galilee has had a few different names. It became the Sea of Tiberias after this instance here. So John, for reference sake, it's got a couple of different names. He wants people to get it and know where it is, so he names them both. And a large crowd was following him. Listen to why. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Now the, the, the men are counted here, but it's likely that a number of women and children were there also. So um, the guesstimation is that nearly 20,000 people or so were there. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. I'm going to give you quickly here the, the three main points, and as we go along, all the subpoints will kind of find their way. But here's the three main points of, of, of what, what we see happening in the text. First, Jesus satisfies completely. Jesus satisfies completely. They had their fill and they were leftovers. Secondly, Jesus uses means. We'll get into that. He uses instruments. He uses people. He uses stuff. Jesus uses means. Thirdly, Jesus on his terms. They thought some things of Jesus. They were hanging around Jesus for certain reasons. But Jesus is going to reveal himself on his terms. So let's dive in. Jesus satisfies completely. There's a problem in this scenario, and that's this, that Jesus um, has been performing signs, and the people are really struck by them, right? Um, Emily and I were um, in a uh, walking down the street in the city a while back and um, you know the street performers and sometimes you're in scenarios where there's street performers and there was these two little kids and they were the, like, the, the best break dancers 
ever. It was awesome. They, they just had all these crazy moves, and they were, there they were on the street do, doing their breakdancing, and the crowd, as they started, just swarmed, just this crowd, because they were so good. Um, a number of years ago, um, uh, some friends and I went on a road trip to California, and we were walking down Hollywood Boulevard, and a movie premiere came out, and so these celebrities just started to walk into the street and down the sidewalk, and a celebrity would be walking one way, and a crowd would just, there's a celebrity, right? So um, there would be a celebrity crowd, right, doing something that really catches the eye crowd. We see in verse 2, that's what's going on. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They've just observed something going on that's really struck them, and people are talking, and there's a buzz, and off they go. Well, this group has grown to be like 5,000 men. This has grown. It's huge. It's a huge crowd. And they're following Jesus, and it's taking time in the day. And now it's getting to the point where people are getting hungry, and they're out on the hillside. There's a problem. And under the circumstances, there's a, really, there's a real like, limit to human resources. Right? Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And that's a lot of money. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But there is a need here. There is a failure of practical resources going on. I want to talk about our need for a minute. I think if you've lived long enough, you've come to the point where you've had a need for practical resources. There's just been a, a situation in your life where the money has run out. Faithful as you've tried to be. You're in a desperate time. You can't pay the rent. You can't get the groceries. Or perhaps that hasn't been the case for you, but there's another physical need. There's sickness. There's debilitation. There's, it's, it's hard. We have these with uh, relational needs. Someone in your family, a friend, an issue. There's a situation where the need is great. And it just feels like beyond like human resources. Right? Financially, if you're in a bind, you're like, I don't know how to get out of this. Or relationally, you're in a situation, you're like, I do not know how this can work out. And what I want to focus on for a moment is spiritual need. See, there is a need that we all have, and it's our need for Jesus. We are needy people. See, this is a scenario where the Exodus uh, is much like the Exodus in, in John chapter 6. We'll talk about it later. Um, and these people, when they left Egypt, they left slavery into freedom, yes, but they went into the wilderness where now they went from like food to like no food, no water, utterly dependent, no human resources, dependent on God. That ultimately is our case. Most ultimately, spiritually, every one of us have a need before Jesus. There is this parable Jesus tells about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee is up on the temple mount, and he's praying, and he's really praying a prideful prayer. It's not even really a prayer if you break it down. It's sort of an acceptance speech of his, great, his own greatness. And he's saying, thank you that I'm not like that guy over there, and the guy over there was a tax collector who was actually standing at a far way off, it said. He wasn't feeling worthy to come even close. And he's thanking that he's not like this and he's not like that and he's good, he gives, he does this, like, right? He's faithful. In his mind, he is good and he thanks God really that he's good. This man in a long way off, a tax collector who's got a messy life, prays a desperate prayer, feeling so unworthy and says, have mercy on me. 
Jesus concludes the parable by saying, it's the tax collector who went home justified. You know what that infers, right? The clean religious guy standing close didn't. His need might not have been as overtly great as the tax collector's need, but he had a need nonetheless. And the tax collector, desperate as he was, acknowledged his full need. The Pharisee, the religious man, didn't acknowledge a thing. He didn't own his need. He didn't recognize that maybe he didn't need to be forgiven as much, but he needed to be forgiven. Maybe he didn't need as much grace, but he sure needed grace. So can I just talk our context for a little bit? Many of you are middle class, upper middle class, Chilliwack Christians, Agassiz Christians. It's one of the most dangerous places to be. Beautiful city. Oftentimes our needs are met physically, relationally, not always. We think we don't need a thing. It's the most dangerous place to be. Every one of us has a need. Every one of us needs Jesus. So here's how that works out. I I don't want to generalize or characterize too much, but where I've seen someone come from a really hard life, when I've seen them come out of addictions, or you've, you've seen the same, come out of um, just utter rejection of God vehemently and turn to Jesus, come to saving faith in Jesus, what typically happens is they're the most on fire, passionate people you've seen. You know why that is, right? Because they look at their past and say, what a wretch. Oh, how I need Jesus. Oh, how I need Jesus. And you and I come relatively clean and say, I think I need Jesus. I don't know, probably a little bit. See, we don't think we need him much. And our lives look like it. (laughs) It's a dangerous place to be. And what we need to recognize before Jesus is that we have a need. So I'm going to make it really, really clear. Every single person in this room is spiritually bankrupt and needs Jesus. Everybody in the room. I just want to narrow it down. I just want to make sure we're all covered. All of us need Jesus, all of us need saving. All of us need the floodgates of his mercy. All of us need his grace to be bestowed upon us, each one of us, every one of us. May we recognize our need. We need to recognize it. It's critical that we recognize our need before Jesus, that we have a need. We need to recognize it. And when we recognize it, we need to ask Jesus to meet our need. Asking Jesus to meet your need. See, once we recognize our need, where do we turn? With a recognition of our need, there needs to be a turning to Jesus for help. I'll be the first to admit, I, I, I totally get that theoretically. I'll sit with people and I'll hear like the, 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 the things in their lives, or I might even reflect myself and be like, wow, I really need Jesus there. Or I'll talk with somebody and there's, there's an issue, and it's like, bring it to Jesus. Bring, right? we, I can talk theoretical all day. The question is, when I actually have a need, do I bring it to Jesus and say, help me, Lord? Like the practical. I get the theory. We can talk till we're blue in the face. Of, of course, Jesus is the most important person. Of course, we need to bring it all to Jesus. Of course. But when there's a need that arises in your life, do you bring it to the Lord? Do you ask Him to help you in your need? Or do you Google it? What's the first impulse? I'll Google it. 
desperate situation, cannot pay bill, help, sin, right? Did you mean you're screwed? Oh, sorry. There, all right. It was a bad Google joke. Um, poor choice of words as well. Um, listen, there's a temptation for us to turn to, literally, to the internet, to get us out of our bind. There's literally, uh, we're just going to go to any person that will listen and just get their opinion. Those are not bad things. The point is, do we bring our needs to Jesus first and foremost? Is he the one we trust with our lives? Is he the one when it's not going well? Or just, look, I'm at the end of human resources here. Lord, do we bring it to Jesus? See, we need to recognize our need, whatever it might be in our lives, and ask Jesus to meet our need. Here's the third sub-point. I want to talk about the sufficiency of Jesus. Let's talk about that. See, after everyone had eaten their fill, there was a need and Jesus met it extraordinarily. After everyone had eaten their fill, had eaten as much as they wanted and were satisfied, the leftovers were gathered up and made up 12 baskets full. There's more than enough when it comes to Jesus meeting our needs. This is an Old Testament theme that carries on over and over and over again. It's eating and drinking are a picture of prosperity throughout the scriptures. Ecclesiastes talks about this. And used of the blessings that would be enjoyed in the promised land. Deuteronomy talks about this. Right? To this land where all your needs will be met, where you'll be fed, where you have enough to drink. Like, it's a picture of prosperity. Jesus here is showing, I can meet your need. I can meet it. Jesus is all sufficient. After the miracle had taken place and everyone had eaten their fill, there were leftovers. There was food in abundance, and that's always the way it is with God. See, when Abraham went to intercede with God on behalf of the righteous in Sodom, God never stopped granting until Abraham stopped asking. You ever notice that? Abraham, what if there's 50 righteous? What if there's 45? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10 righteous? Will you spare this city? Every time God's like, yes, if there's 50. Yes, if there's 30. Yes, if there's 10. And Abraham stops at 10. And they go off their own ways. And there weren't 10. So that place was destroyed. God only stopped granting when Abraham stopped asking. The same thing happens in 2 Kings chapter 4 with Elisha's oil. There's a widow in need and Elisha, uh, God uses Elisha to bring this oil to flow that will meet her in her debt and help her to survive. And the supply of oil didn't run out until the widow who was helped by Elisha ran out of jars. The, Elisha was, like, the, the, the oil wasn't about to stop flowing. It's just she just didn't have any more containers left, so it was just done. She, God filled the last jar that was around. Do you come to him with your need and empty vessels and draw from the grace of our Lord Jesus? Have you asked him to supply your need? Philippians 4 verse 19 says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every need according to the riches of Jesus. And those riches never run dry. They never stop. They never fail. He's never out of money. He's never right, out of love. He's never out of grace. It's out of his riches that are unending. 
Have you asked him to supply your need? Look, it may not look the way you think. Philip couldn't wrap his mind around how everyone would get fed. So he didn't even, he didn't even know how to ask. He didn't even know what to recommend. But Jesus fed the crowd and everyone was satisfied. Look, we might think it's supposed to look a particular way in our lives, that him meeting our needs looks this particular way, and perhaps by his grace he, he, he blesses in that way or meets you in that. But God's going to meet you in your need. The, we don't need to narrow the picture of exactly how that will look, but we need to bring him our need and trust that the sufficiency of Jesus is enough. Jesus is eternal after all. He existed before creation. And Jesus is sovereign after all. He has planned out all the situations of your life. And he cares more deeply for you than anyone and is able to meet your need more abundantly than anyone. So bring your need to Jesus and see if he's not able to satisfy you completely. Recognize your need. Ask Jesus to meet your need. And see if he's not able to satisfy you completely. Let's move on. I'm going to read verse 5 and the following verses again. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so these people may eat? He said this to test them, test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Jesus uses means. By means, I mean he uses a device, an object, an instrument. He uses people. He uses circumstances. Jesus uses means. Firstly, he tests us for our good. Let's look at Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, which was nearby. So it's natural, right? He's the local what should we do about all these hungry people? Say it to the person who lived, who's from nearby. It's natural that he would turn to Philip. And Jesus asked Philip this question in the same way he told the Samaritan woman at the well to bring her husband. John tells us that Jesus said it to test him, and clearly Philip failed the test. I was greatly helped by um, a pastor, um, James Montgomery Boyce, 20th century preacher in Philadelphia. I really appreciate him a lot. He looked at Philip in, in a couple of particular ways when it came to his knowledge and it came to money. Knowledge and money. See, Philip was so flattered at being asked this question by Jesus. He starts to rack his brain. He starts to think logistically, using his knowledge and head for figures. He began to show off his knowledge and showing off his knowledge actually revealed his ignorance. Knowledge can be a blessing, but it can also be a handicap to trusting the Lord. When, pl when placed in Christ's hands, knowledge is valuable. When trusted in itself, it's not. I look around this room, and there's a lot of smart people in this room. And um, we can do one of two things with that. See, when God gives you wits, when he gives you smarts, when he gives you knowledge, there can, there's always this temptation to, hey, I'm going I'm to figure this thing out. I'm going to get out of this jam, or I'm going to think logistically about practically, whatever. I'm going to use my knowledge... And sort it all out. We can think that, wait, I'm a pretty smart guy, so we just go at it. It's actually an ignorant way to approach our knowledge, the, the gift that God has given through smarts and intellect. Are we to use that? Of course. But in his hands. 
where to put it in his hands, our knowledge, our, our wits, where to give them to Jesus and say, Lord, help me to understand. Help me to, to, to get this. Help me to be faithful here and be a help. Knowledge in Christ's hands is valuable. When trusted in itself, I'm a smart guy, I'll figure this out. It's not. He also had a head for figures, and this in turn led him to trust money. He began to calculate. He said to himself, let's see now. There are about 100 people in that little group. There are about 300 here. It looks like there's like 1,000 coming towards me here. And now if we give everyone just a little bit, um, that would be so many times a few cents. Now if we give everyone just a little bit, that would be, yeah, so many times a few cents. And then he goes and he gives Jesus the results of his calculations. He said, eight months' wages would not be enough to buy bread for each one to have a little or to have a bite. Okay, that's great. It's great you figured out the calculations, Philip. But you calculated without Jesus. See, the problem is is that there's a crowd that have been following Jesus because they've seen a number of signs. Philip's seen them too. And Jesus asks them, puts them to the test. All right, Philip, we've got like 20,000 people here and they're hungry. Where are the local spots? Where, Where should we get food? He calculates it all. He thinks it all through. And he ignores the Savior who's beside him, the miracle worker, the one who can meet need. He's seen it with his own eyes. He has not factored Jesus into the equation of his money and his knowledge. Tests come in our lives, obstacles, challenges, sufferings of life. But they're not void of Jesus. He not only uses them for his purposes, he ordains them. The question is, will you trust him? Will you turn to him? He tests us for our good. Will we learn? So look, let us use our knowledge. Yes, let us use our money. Yes, let us use anything else God gives us. But above all, let's place them in Jesus' hands. May we live that way in our own lives. May we live that way as a church family, not desiring a little from the Lord, but much. And with our eyes fixed on Him every step of the, t- of the way. Jesus, <coughs> Jesus uses means in another way. He multiplies our feeble gifts. Let's talk about a poor boy for a little while. Barley bread. This, this boy had five barley loaves. Barley bread is... is is the poorest classes bread. You only had barley loaves if you were of the poorest class. And the two fish probably weren't lovely trout, right? Probably weren't a great catch. They were likely small pickled fish to make the horrendous tasting bread go down a little bit more deliciously, a little bit less horrifically, terribly. And the word for boy here is young child. He's just a young, young kid. It's not a derogatory term necessarily, but just very young. Young kid, and, and young kids were just weren't really given a lot of respect in that culture, so it was very insignificant. So, we have a poor young boy with a poor kid's lunch. It's insignificant. Except for one fact. The boy placed it in Jesus' hands. It was feeble, yeah. But he gave it to Jesus. His gift is a drop in the bucket. There are thousands of people on the hillside. He's got five barley loaves and two pickled fish. But he gave them to Jesus. Jesus has always used feeble gifts. 
for his glory. A shepherd's rod is just a rod until God uses it in Moses' hand. A sling is just a sling until God used it significantly in David's hand. From Noah and Abraham to Mary and Peter, God used their insignificant gifts placed in his hands to weave his grand story of redemption. Exhibit A, I right now am using my feeble gifts. I, I'm not trying to like knock myself down. Don't hear that. I'm not trying to get sympathy from you. Please don't hear that. I'm, just, I'm right in front of you. Let's just talk about it for a second. I'm just using my feeble gifts. I had a mentor a few years back, and when he would go up and preach, I literally would think, I, I shouldn't do this. Like, what's the point? He's just so good. Like, he is so good. I, I would be so helped by his sermons and at the same time say, I don't think I should do this because I cannot do that. But God, by his grace, has, has thrust me in situations over the years where I've had the privilege of preaching the Bible. And every Sunday morning, I'm just like, oh, Lord, like, why me? I Like, look, I, there are people smarter than me. There are people with better degrees than me. There are people, you know, more eloquent than me. Why am I here? Feeble gifts. These are poor kid gifts. But God, by his grace, takes a willing heart. and I'm just going to study this thing like crazy because I'm going to look like a fool on Sunday if I don't. <laughs> I'm going to study this thing like crazy because, God, you'll either speak through your word or you won't, and I want you to speak. God, I'm going to bring, like, study and prayer and desperation, and it gets progressively more desperate until 9 a.m. arrives on Sunday morning. If you could hear my prayer life, like Saturday and Sunday are like, Help, Lord. I'm looking at my pages. There's nothing. Right? Just, and yet, God, by His grace, literally takes feeble gifts. Is there someone better? Look, I get asked all the time, oh, what seminary did you go to? Uh, no seminary? One class of seminary? Have you heard of that? One class seminary? It's really, really good. I bought the degree online. Super cheap. Lead team fell for it, so whatever. <laughs> Look, I, I was asked at the AGM, do you get nervous before you go up and preach? Oh, yeah. Every week, without fail. Not because public speaking is so scary, but because I'm not trying to share my thoughts with you. Spending time in the Word and trusting that the Lord will impress it on hearts, and I want His Word to not fail you. I want his word to be impressed on your heart and you would go away with truths. And that scares me. Because I'm just a kid with feeble gifts. I'm trusting God right now with my feeble gifts. Here's the point. The point isn't that your gifts need to be great in order to be used by God. The point is that you need to put them in his hands. There's always someone better at it. Put them in his hands. He will use you. Maybe it's children's ministry. Maybe it's evangelism. Maybe it's children's ministry. Maybe it's hospitality. Maybe it's children's ministry. <laughs> maybe it's generosity. Or, my friends, maybe it's even children's ministry. 
Put your gifts, feeble as they may be. Take your poor kid's lunch and put it in his hands. He also uses us to draw others. I really like Andrew. I don't think I'm a lot like Andrew, but I, I really like Andrew. Whenever he shows up, he's bringing people to Jesus. Andrew is referred here yet again, as he almost always is, as Peter's brother. I love the scenario earlier in John, because Peter isn't even on the scene yet, and Andrew's already referred to as Peter's brother. <laughs> By the way, my wife loves being called Matt's wife. You know, just Emily loves that. You know, just there's a little sarcasm there. But hey, Matt, are you Matt's wife? Yeah. That's me, the wife, no. That's Andrew. Hey, you Peter's brother? You're Peter's brother, right? Oh, man, you're Peter's brother, awesome. That's always how he's referred to, Peter's brother. Even before Peter's on the scene, he's Peter's brother. But what does he do? What does Peter's brother do? Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, brings Peter to Jesus. You know what he does in this scenario? He brings a poor, insignificant, right, in their eyes, child, to Jesus, and he's found out he's got five loaves and fishes. Andrew's been meeting with people. He's a people person. Philip and Andrew both are, really. They're the, they, they seem to be the disciples of the people. There are instances when people approach the disciples, and it seems to be Andrew and Philip that they're talking with. I'm content to sit in my office and read. That's a little bit about me. I could do that all day. Pastor Eldon, our Agassiz campus pastor, his ideal day, he's content to traverse through Agassiz and drop in on people. Because he's been praying for them and, and someone's come to mind and he's like, oh, I'll just go drop in and see how they're doing. He's very Andrew-like, right? That's Pastor Gary here as well. Like, you probably, every one of you have been invited to a coffee with Gary. Just say, he wants to just hang out with you, spend time with you, know you, hear your story, right? Like, this is Andrew labor. He's always bringing someone to Jesus. This is significant. And it's a significant gift. It's a significant ministry bringing people to Jesus, placing them in Jesus' hands, that they might meet Jesus. When my wife was a teenager, her friend brought her to youth group. When she was a young adult and exploring the faith, a Christian nonprofit hired her and befriended her and took her to church and loved her and pointed her to Jesus. So many of you do this too. You have conversations going and you want to bring them to Jesus. You want to point them to Jesus and it absolutely changes the life of the person that you will put that time into and point them to Jesus. It's a significant gift. He uses us to draw others. Jesus uses means. Lastly, verse 14, when the people saw the signs that Jesus had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus on his terms. Let's talk about it. It's not that they didn't think highly of Jesus. They just didn't think highly enough. It's not that they didn't recognize that there was something important about Jesus. They just didn't recognize it enough. See, all of this really, all of John chapter 6, is this brilliantly crafted new exodus, greater exodus. See, where, where God's people were initially, Moses brought them out of slavery and into freedom, into the promised land. Jesus has come to bring people out of sin and into a greater promised land, a new heaven and a new earth. Next week, you're going to see a Jesus walking on water, the need for supernatural deliverance at sea and helping them get safely to the other side. Sound significant? Or sound, sound like you've heard that before? What does John say in verse 4? He talks about the Passover. He's placing that there intentionally because the exodus began with the very first 
Passover. Jesus came not only to offer them a Passover meal, but to be their Passover meal. In fact, later in John's Gospel, in verse 54, chapter 6, verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That's an odd verse. In other words, it's on Jesus that we are fed and satisfied. What the manna in the wilderness pointed to is perfectly given in Jesus. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John wants us to see all of that happening. There's a greater Exodus and a greater Moses here. He is first a greater prophet. They say, when they saw the signs he had done, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. That's a reference to Moses speaking in Deuteronomy 18 where he says there will be a, a prophet like me to come. And Jesus is that prophet, but he is a greater prophet. John the Baptist, in, in chapter 1, they're seeing what John the Baptist is doing. And they say, are you the prophet? Referring to this one Moses was speaking about. He says, no. And he points to Jesus. Jesus is not just another prophet, which they thought he was sort of a, a significant prophet that Moses was pointing to. He's the great prophet. And his, his words are repentance and faith that we ultimately would come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only prophet. This is why he's the greatest prophet. He's the only prophet to point to himself. Prophet's work is always to point to God, point people to God. I want you to hear this word and be pointed to God. Jesus is the only prophet who can show up on the scene and say, look to me. That's his prophetic word. Turn to Jesus. This word prophet is rarely used, it is a rarely used term in the scriptures for Jesus, and it typically was used about those who didn't grasp who he was. Hey, he's a prophet. It was sort of this lack of understanding when they used that term. He's a far greater prophet than they ever imagined. He's also a greater king. He's a greater king. Look at the text, verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, Moses took his people out of Egypt, made them a people in the promised land. That's what they're looking for here. And so they, by force, want to take Jesus, who can perform these signs, and they want revolt. They want freedom. And Jesus read their hearts in this circumstance, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, and knew that the kind of king and kingdom they were looking for had nothing to do with the kind of kingdom he had come to bring. They were looking for the kingdom of man. He came to bring the kingdom of God. He didn't come to lead the revolt against the Romans, but to lay his life down as an offering for sin. His mission was to bring his people so much more than bread and fish. They wanted to make Jesus king, and he was a king, but a far greater king of a far greater kingdom. Finally, he's a greater priest. Now you may wonder in those last couple of verses, well, I'm not seeing the priest imagery here. Well, let's look back at verse 4 again about the Passover now, John is really clear, really particular, and very intentional about this use of the word. Earlier in John's gospel, it was the time of the Passover, and Jesus cleansed the temple. Very significant. Here, Jesus, revealing that he's the greater Moses with the greater Exodus, is feeding the people bread from heaven, right? He's feeding them manna, but pointing ultimately to himself as the one who satisfies. You know where the third and final reference to Passover is in the, the gospel of John? At Jesus' death and resurrection, and so Jesus didn't come just to give you bread, but to be your bread. 
He didn't just come to make another sacrifice until you need another sacrifice again. He came to be the, the only priest who comes along and is himself the once for all sacrifice. Jesus is the Passover meal, not just supplying elements of it. Jesus is the sacrifice. He is the lamb that was slain. When Jesus gives his flesh and blood on the cross, he becomes bread and wine that satisfies for all sinners who believe. Now it's really important for us to see here, they thought a lot of Jesus, but they didn't think enough of him. And Jesus won't come that way. They wanted to make him king, to their liking. But he left. He wasn't going to come that way. They thought he was simply a prophet, and an important prophet, yes. But he's not going to come that way, because that's not all he is. He will not come that way. And many of us approach the faith that way as well. Right? We're fans of Jesus, perhaps, but we're not followers. There's a little bit about Jesus that we like. He's really a social guy, right? Meets the needs of the poor and that's what I like. And Jesus is the one who is always advocating for the poor and that's it. And that's true, but stops there. That's who Jesus is. That's his mandate. That's what he wants. Or he's, he's, his like, morals, right? Like that Jesus is a moral figure and I like that. And so people need to get in line and get the right morals. And Jesus certainly reveals that, but that's not all he came to do, right? Or people will say, Jesus just wants me to be happy. And that's what Jesus wants. So the Jesus of our making that's lesser than is simply saying, all he wants is for my happiness. He won't want me to change. He won't want me to be different. Let me tell you, there are places in God's word where he says, you have to, you have, you have to lay your life down. You have to die so you can take up life in me. It's a new life. You're reborn. You don't get to just be you and just a happier version of you with Jesus tagged on. You die to sin and self and you become a new creation in Christ. Jesus just doesn't want you to be happy in your own state, just get, getting more from Jesus of what you prefer. Jesus absolutely transforms the life. See, we need to be really careful here and understand that Jesus won't come as the way that we choose him to. He won't come in a lesser version we can't round down when it comes to Jesus and say, that's who he is. It's always rounding up. Jesus won't come that way. We come on his terms. That's the way he comes, and that's the way he's received. His terms, not ours. But let me tell you, when you come on his terms, when you submit to him, when you see the picture of who he is, and you give yourself to Jesus as he truly is, your life will be transformed, and you will experience happiness like you never could have otherwise. You will care for the needs of the poor and you'll want to meet them and you'll pray to Jesus and you'll ask him to meet you there. Your life will look different. You will see what right living is and pursue holiness. That will come, yes. But we can't round down and think, put Jesus in a box. He will not come that way. We need to see him as he is, as the scriptures describe him to be, and give our lives to him that way. See, Jesus is the greater prophet who points to himself, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus the prophet, revealing himself. Jesus the king, the greater king, will come again and rule and reign over the new heavens and the new earth. He is a king, and he has a kingdom, and he will reign. And we need to see how it is he will do that. And he is our great high priest. Jesus gave his life so that you could be satisfied and your sins could be forgiven, that you could be freed forever. So, put your life, put your gifts, put your needs, put it in his hands. Let's pray. Jesus, 
thank you that you are not the God of our own making, but you are the ruler and the savior of the world. Lord, we confess there's a lot of need. Every one of us have need. May we see it, may we acknowledge it, and may we bring it to you. For you love us. You want to meet it. You satisfy completely. Lord Jesus, you use um, feeble gifts. You just want us to place them in your hands with a willing heart. Lord, would you do that in us? For there are many needs among us. There are many gifts given, and we are a more vibrant community when we flourish in the roundedness of our gifts. So Lord, call us out. Call us out to use our gifts, insignificant as we think they are, and they are, ultimately. But you make them significant and use them when we place them in your hands. And finally, Lord, you are the one we are to look to for all of these things. You are the great Savior of the world. So we come to you, we lay our lives down before you and proclaim you as Savior and Lord. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.